narrative that primary care is a dying specialty or interest, it's just not true. Students are drawn to the mission of primary care and family medicine, and we're seeing that. Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh and Brian are joined by Sean Martin, the Executive Vice President and CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians, or AAFP. The AAFP represents over 137,000 family physicians and medical residents in the United States. They are the largest physician organization dedicated to primary care, working to promote physicians' professional success and professional satisfaction. You will hear about what has led to a pay imbalance between primary care physicians and other specialists and the need for a new payment model to create a financial structure that rewards the type of longitudinal care primary care physicians provide. You will also hear about the numbers of medical residents matching into family medicine, as well as telehealth beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Brian Chaglinski, the Communications Director here at Allidade, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Josh Israel. Today, we're talking with the Executive Vice President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Sean Martin. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Maybe you could start our listeners off with just a little background on what AAFP is and your mission. Sure. Thank you very much. And thank you all for the invitation to join you today. Looking forward to the conversation. So the American Academy of Family Physicians is a a professional organization that represents uh, the nation's 137,000 plus family physicians and medical residents and and medical students. Um, We are uh, one of the largest physician organizations in the country, and we are the largest physician organization uh, dedicated to, to primary care. Um, the organization has been around since the 1940s and uh, was formerly known as the American College of General Practitioners uh, until the uh, 1960s when they transferred over to the American Academy of Family Physicians. So we represent, as I said, about 137,000 members around the country. Our members are practicing in communities large and small, rural and urban. Um, we have a footprint in about 95% of U.S. counties. What should physicians who are thinking about becoming members of the AFP know about it or physicians who are currently members? Uh, what do you think they might not know about it that they should? The, the academy is, has, is really fortunate. We have incredible market share. So most family physicians in the country are members of the academy. I think the, I think the one thing that I would want people to understand about the AAFP if they don't already do so is our primary focus or, you know, not just in our mission statement, but our work every day is really focused on their professional success and also their professional satisfaction. And we are not solely devoted on one answer to that challenge. We recognize that our members practice in a diverse Uh, practice settings. They have diverse professional interests. They are responding to community need, and and we're here to help them be successful uh, in their professional endeavors, and we want them to enjoy the practice of medicine. So there are things we we do that try to make their job more enjoyable, and I, I think that gets lost. I think a lot of people think we are an organization that is solely designed around, you know, big task of payment and delivery reform and things like that, but we are very uh, interested in kind of soft skills um, that help them enjoy their day-to-day um, job more. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a it's it's a great group that just has such a diverse and broad-based membership that the expertise and the learnings that are shared are just really incredible to see. I'd like to maybe uh, focus us a little on you specifically and kind of you have a, a career 
working at the intersection of policy and medicine. So I'd like to hear like what kind of drew you to family medicine specifically and what was it that attracted you the most to, to the AFP today? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I will tell you, uh, my father was a rural family physician in rural Northwest Oklahoma. And um, I've, I've shared this story more in the last few years than I did when I first came to the academy. But um, um, I think not observations from, you know, I didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up. So I didn't have observations that were driving professional interest when I was in my formative years. But my observations of just being around and seeing his practice and the engagement uh, that he had with our community and, you know, just kind of how they relied upon each other. Um, the community needed him and his colleagues and they needed the community and just the mutual support that they provided each other. It was really an interesting thing to see in the 70s and early 80s in my formative years. And, and I went and did different things. And ultimately, when I had an opportunity to, to come to work at the AFP in 2012, um, that was really what drew me back was just the, the um, purity of the relationship that family physicians have with the communities they serve. Um, and I wanted to come back and, and contribute to that in my small way. We just had match day. Uh, the day of the year where residents get assigned uh, to the specialty that they're going to go into. So I want to talk a little bit about the numbers there um, and what the future holds. But I don't want to ignore that a lot of choice is driven by pay. Mm -hmm. And there's no good reason, given how crucial PCPs are to patients' health, there's no great reason that radiologists make two to three times what they make and that dermatologists make two to three times that. Like, what What drives that pay imbalance? And can anything be done about it? Uh, it's a great question. So I, I, um, I have my emotional answer, but today I'm going to give you my academic answer. I think um, there were a series of decisions that uh, people that understand physician payment, a series of decisions that were made uh, in the 1980s and 1990s that, uh, you know, put us on a trajectory of where we find ourselves today. And I, um, I am always quick in my public commentary on this issue to say that the system has not failed. Uh, the system has actually accomplished exactly what it was designed to accomplish. It is designed to reward um, innovations in technology. It's designed to reward uh, high volume, low variation uh, types of physician services. And, you know, the, the physician fee schedule is basically performing as it was set out to perform in, in you know, the early 1990s. I, I think the, the challenge for us moving forward is how do we create a system that rewards comprehensiveness versus um, you know, targeted care? And how do we uh, create a system that re rewards longitudinal care versus episodic care? And um, you know, the, the original researchers in California in the 1960s and you know, at Harvard and other places in the 70s and 80s that were working on kind of this concept of relative values routinely pointed uh, to the fact that relative values would ultimately undermine or work against longitudinal practice models. So, you know, people that had a continuous relationship with a patient would, um, the, the payment system would ultimately not be beneficial to that design. So I, I think we understand what happened. Um, I think, I don't know that we've acknowledged it as a health policy community, but 
Um, I, I think there are clear ways to repair a system, um, you know, that is, you know, demonstrated its effectiveness at doing what it was designed to do. Now we don't want it to do that anymore. Yeah, one of the um, one of the things that uh, that Farzad usually talks about, Farzad Mustashari, our uh, CEO, is is this idea of the water that we're all swimming in is this structure that's been set up and uh, kind of ha it, as you mentioned, it's it's working the way it's been designed to. And one of the missions that we've been on here uh, at Alidate has been trying to find ways to uh, re-engineer that system and to promote it to work in in new ways. And I think uh, you know we're um, a little over a decade now into uh, really the the latest push in this transition to value-based care. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how AAFP sees how that transition has gone and kind of what what has worked, what hasn't, and maybe what's on the horizon for um, for our healthcare system moving into one that rewards value over volume. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, just the opportunity to work with Farzad on and, you know, the, the team, Sean and Travis and others, you know, all the way for years now, I mean, has been, you know, really rewarding for me personally in the academy. And I mean, we kind of all started on this, you know, journey way back in like 2008 and 2009. You know, it's been um, kind of an interesting evolution of ideas that have taken place. So I, I think I think there's some big rocks for me that I, I think about. But, you know, one is that conversation we just had about, you know, the system is is the system is not designed to accomplish what I think we all share as desirable outcomes. Um, and I think there's been some interventions and in, innovations, if you will, about acknowledging that. So I, I think risk models like ACOs and, you know, the patient center medical home and others were kind of first generation efforts to say that this big thing that we created in 1992 is not working. We need to kind of organize these financial resources and human effort in a different way. I, I still think we haven't really got to the most desirable outcome for primary care, which, you know, people will, you know, adjust their ties when I make this statement. But I mean, we really need to get to, you know, some type of perspective global capitated payment that is putting financial resources behind a longitudinal or continuous care model for primary care. Now that has multiple trap doors, you know, capitation has demonstrated um, some limitations historically, you know, I don't think we should give up on it because of what happened in the eighties and early nineties, but you know, people have their biases based upon those experiences that we need to be mindful of and, and correct for. In, in summary, the, the, the payment model needs to actually produce a financial structure to support the type of care that we want primary care to deliver that is scalable based upon geography and based upon patient population, um, et cetera. And, and I think we have a lot of work to do there. So I, I will tell you from the Academy's perspective, we view this as a journey. Um, you know, we started way back you know, with the ideal medical practice in the 1990s at the Academy. We, we've been through the medical home. We've been through ACOs, we've been through, you know, next gen, we've been to primary care first and CPC plus, like we just kind of view this as a, a, a journey and we are an organization that has a culture of being committed to learning. Um, so we just keep learning and keep innovating and, and working with good partners like Alidate and, and, you know, I don't know that we ever get, you know, to the end of this road. Um, I think we just contribute to innovation in our time that we, we are all here. I like that, that it is just sort of an ongoing journey. Uh, do you have in the short term, 
specific policy goals that you'd, you'd like to see happen, you know, especially now that there's a new administration? Yeah, I, th I think um, obviously we have a really big uh, advocacy agenda at the academy. I think with respect to payment and delivery, there there are four things that I would like to make um, commonplace in every uh, insurance product and payment structure. And, and you know, one is that payments for primary care be perspective, that they be global, um, that we have a narrow set of outcome based evaluation criteria for primary care, and we kind of get away from what I like to call as um, you know, measuring activity. I think right now we're just kind of measuring, you know, all the motion that physicians are going through every day. And let's, you know, let's actually measure them on what they do and, and how, you know, the, the upstream product of their services. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really important for us as a healthcare system is a patient is not a patient. You know, we need to be more committed to and mindful of risk adjustment and uh, patient, um, you know, stratification of our patient populations to help physicians focus their time. And uh, I think as a healthcare system, historically, we've always said, you know, patients have to be treated the same. You know, every patient gets treated the same in our practice. And, and that's never been true. And I think, you know, the, the quicker that we just acknowledge that we should stratify patients based upon health condition and disease state will, will help our members be, you know, more successful in their practices. Let me ask a follow-up to that is, you know, you talked about um, having physicians judged on on outcome, on meaningful product, um, fewer measures. But when you talk about stratifying by sickness and disease state, then you get into risk coding, which does then bring physicians back to this experience of sort of ticky-tacky charting sometimes. So I'm wondering how you how you square that. Yeah, it's it's um it's a it's a evolutionary process of innovation. I I um I admit that it it's a contradiction in my assertions of policy. Um, I I think the I think the important thing that a global perspective primary care payment allows practices to do is to focus practice resources where it's most impactful at any given time. So you know the you know, and it's agnostic to modality of care, right? So patients come in, we do telemedicine, we call them, you know, the practice staff or practice team engages. So the reason I think it is important to stratify by health condition or disease state is to begin to help practices identify where effort needs to be asserted um, within their attributed population of patients. I don't think it has to trickle down to measurement, um, it does today, but I think in an ideal state, it would be an organizing methodology for the practice and the practices would still be evaluated on kind of um, outcome-based uh, measures. As Josh mentioned a little earlier, we just had match day um, and we saw more than 4,000 uh, residents match in, in family medicine, uh, which is growing and, and really exciting, I think, to see this focus really, really coming to the fore again, and people still coming into the to primary care. I'm wondering, you know, looking at those new residents as they come into family medicine today, what do you think the future looks like for them? How will they be practicing medicine over the career that they've that they've started? Um, and if I could add to that, is what what were the numbers like this year? You know, more primary care docs, fewer. Um, so the match was was extremely positive from our perspective, and I think from any you know measurable evaluation of the data, everybody would say it's positive. I mean, it's almost 5,000 um, medical students matched into a family medicine residency program. We actually offered 
almost 300, I think it was 385 more FTEs this year than we did the previous year. So we're growing the number of residency positions, largely teaching health centers, new hospitals coming online. So there's not only is there growth in interest in the medical students going into family medicine, there's growth in capacity uh, to train more family physicians uh, in the future. And I, I just think those things are incredibly positive. As, as I told our team internally on match day, you know, the narrative that primary care is a dying specialty or interest amongst medical students is just not, it's not bearing out in numbers. It's just not true. Students are drawn to the mission of primary care and family medicine, and, and we're, we're seeing that. So I, I don't know what the future looks like. I, I think there's a little bit of us that's like, we're going to create your future. And I think that future is more uh, population-based and community-based. I think it is, uh, you know, more agnostic to modality of care. And I think this will be the thing that will be so much different for the next generation than probably the previous two is it will really be a choice of do I do a virtual health visit or do I do an in-person visit or maybe I'm doing a home visit or a phone call. You know, maybe I'm just communicating with this particular patient through an app, you know, that's kind of monitoring their health status and I'm communicating back, you know, through this API connected communication mechanism. Like I, I just think it's going to be highly connected um, with the patient. I think the other thing broader, broadly in the healthcare system that primary care will respond to, um, I think our healthcare system has always been physician centric, meaning that patients always came to physicians, and I think the future healthcare system that these uh, family physicians will practice in will be more patient-centric, meaning care comes to them um, in their environment, whether that's at home or in their phone or on their computer. Um, I, I think the concept that they always come to the office is uh, going to diminish a little bit. How has telehealth uh, been a factor in the work that you're doing? So we, um, well, like everybody else, including your guys' work, we, 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 um, we, we've been involved in telehealth and telemedicine for a long time as a policy priority, and that took on factors of 10, you know, last March. And, uh, you know, we really ramped up our policy and advocacy work around telehealth and digital health. I, I, my general feeling is that the COVID pandemic probably equates to about a decade of progress around telehealth and telemedicine. I think it just accelerated people so far forward out of necessity. And, and the other thing I love is, you know, we had about 22% of our members that were using telehealth on a routine basis, you know, prior to last March, it went over 90% at the height of, you know, last summer, we're back down to like the low 80s now. But, um, you know, before we couldn't get them to do a virtual meeting, um, you know, on Zoom or Google, and now they're all experts on the, you know, every telehealth platform out there and like the advantages and disadvantages of all of them. So the technology learning curve has definitely ramped up. And, and I think people are looking to see how to best incorporate that into their practice. Yeah, I really like the point you brought up about um, your father and his practice of medicine and how you saw that relationship between kind of the independent provider and the community and the community supporting him as well and kind of the back and forth there. Um, and so one of the things, you know, we're really focused on at Allidate is, is supporting those community-based small independent physicians and making sure that they have the same chance to succeed as, you know, the larger healthcare organizations. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about that model and kind of how you see that going forward. 
Yeah, I, I think I think it's one of the the things that I'm really excited about about healthcare policy, and and we've, you know, entered and maybe we're exiting our phase of bigger is better and too big to fail, and we're kind of coming to a realization that downward scalability um, is allowing people to be successful in more meaningful ways, particularly at the community level. And I think you guys have, you know, obviously led in this area and created an opportunity for for practices of, of all levels and all geographic areas to be successful in their own way. And I, I think the unique thing is we have, you know, physicians that uh, are part of your organization and and others that, you know, they're never going to be the Cleveland Clinic. And, and I think the important thing is we shouldn't want them to be the Cleveland Clinic. That's not their mission. That's not really what we should ask of them. We want them to be really successful in their you know, rural practice or their ex-urban practice in their own way and be responsive to the communities uh, that they are serving. And, and I just think, I think this is an area of focus that I'm really excited about moving forward is, is innovation is becoming downward scalable instead of always upward scalable. And um, I think this is just a, a, it's an incredible opportunity for people across the country to get better primary care because we're creating these opportunities. But it's also an opportunity for our physicians to have greater professional satisfaction because they, you know, they they get to practice in a, in a manner and environment that is rewarding to them. Our guest today has been Sean Martin, Executive Vice President and CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Thanks, Sean. Thank you all. This episode of The ACO Show was produced by Brittany Barnes and Hannah Posner. Our theme music is by Donna Korn. You can find previous episodes on our website Alliday.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.